This podcast features adults using adult language, but you know, you got to grow up sometime. Hey everyone, you know what it's time for? Swans Crossing! Oh my god, so I just got back from an 18-day vacation, and it was great. I had a really good time. Um, you drove to Florida. Yeah, I drove to Florida. <laughs> well, I didn't just drive to Florida. <laughs> we live we live on the opposite end of the country. I, I would believe that it takes 18 days to drive to and from Florida. <laughs> no, it turns out it takes about five days if you're driving roughly like eight to ten hours per day. But no, we, we, uh, we started in Seattle with my friend Katie's wedding. And then we drove down to the Southwest. We spent an extra day in Santa Fe and went to Meow Wolf, which was really fun. My cats are fighting in the background. I don't know if anyone could hear that. And then we drove over to New Orleans and spent four days there. And then we went to Florida for my other friend Jackie's wedding. And then we drove back. So um, it was fun. It was a good time. But I, I took 18 days where I did not write a word, which was good. I haven't, and I thought about it, I haven't taken that much time off of writing for like, 14 or 15 years so were you ready to go when you got back were you like i have so many words pent up yeah i was so ready to go that i actually like on this trip i realized that there is a problem with the book i'm currently working on for my publisher and like my deadline was november 15th so i Uh emailed my editor and i was like can i have like two extra weeks because i gotta fix something unfortunately she was like yeah that's fine that's totally cool but um yeah it, it like it really creatively rejuvenated me which was good Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So now uh, now I'm back. I'm recording Gotta Grow Up Sometime, a Swans Crossing retrospective. I'm Libby Grant. I'm Nathan Kessler-Jeffrey. And we're ready to go. <laughs> so excited. Episode yeah. 60. Oh, man. Six zero. Six zero. We're on the final week, or we will be next, next uh, episode. We'll be on the final week of airtime for Swans Crossing. Can you believe it? Yes, I can. It's been interminable. <laughs> you love it. You love this show. <laughs> I don't love this show, Libby. I love our show. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm I'm ready. Uh like this is and as a reminder, everybody, send in your questions for the big wrap-up episode. We'd love to we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, private message me on um Instagram at Swans Cross Pod or on Twitter at gotta grow up pod. And I will gather your questions and uh, we'll put them in our last episode. It'll be fun. We'll have a good time. Okay, here we go. Episode six zero. Let's go over your predictions from episode 59. It's been a couple of weeks, so you may not remember this. I don't. I try to, I keep, I keep episodes in my head the way that computers keep uh, RAM, right? As soon <laughs> As soon as I don't need it anymore, it goes directly in the trash. Well, here here is what you predicted last time. Saja escapes from Captain Baldi and finds Callie to explain what's up. That was correct. You nailed it. Not bad. You, you predicted that game night would happen. Also correct. Oh, yeah. 
You predicted that Garrett would do something to threaten JT. Maybe Mila would find out that JT wrote the poems. That didn't quite exactly happen, so no. Something would go horribly wrong at game night and it would cause a commotion. I mean, not really, but maybe. I mean, something did go wrong, but it did not really cause a commotion. Actually, numerous things went wrong. Yes. You predicted there would be no resolution yet for Sydney's birth certificate. That was correct. And maybe Barrick would meet with Pegasus. Uh, does not appear to have happened. No. And finally, JT and Neil would either be vastly overwhelmed or vastly underwhelmed by the amount of money they made. That was correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the thumbnail? I desperately want to talk about the thumbnail. It looks like we're at the, the party because it appears to be in JT's room. There are these mylar balloons and colorful letter decorations behind Sydney and Garrett. I believe the letters spelled dunk in. And I was thinking it would be amazing if there was an actual dunk tank in JT's room. That would be incredible. Uh, Garrett is turned away from the camera facing Sydney, who looks like a peppermint stick in her dress or her vest, as it turns out to be, and is giving him this eye roll sort of look, but not nearly as vulnerable as she has been in the past. So I felt like something has changed. She doesn't feel quite under the gun about the birth certificate in the same way that she used to. So. Yes, I would say that is all pretty much correct. Let's, can you describe for our listeners the opening of this episode? Cause it is wild. Oh Yeah. We open with Garrett making another strong bid for Psychopath of the Week right out of the gate as he rides his mini bike straight at Sydney, who's just like standing around in the parking lot of Swans at night. He stops right beside her. She sells, She yells, Garrett, you almost killed me. He takes off his helmet, glares at her menacingly and says, too bad, close, on, close only counts in horseshoes and nuclear war. So Garrett making death threats at Sydney. Two lines in, I'm calling Psychopath of the Week. Oh, without a doubt, Garrett's got it in the bag this week. Oh my word. (laughs) It's so good. So we cut from that straight to the Walker estate, where Saja's still running from the Baldi. He trips over what looks like just a rock. Later we found out it's supposed to be a tombstone, but he trips over a rock, picks himself up and runs on. The Baldi comes after him, also trips over the same rock while yelling in his made-up language. And then he apparently hits his head and passes out because he doesn't move again. Saja comes back into frame, his ninja mask pulled down, and examines the unconscious form of Captain Baldi. As he does, a fully masked and cloaked figure, masked like Saja in his ninja garb, rises from the bushes behind him like he's on an open elevator. Sasha turns and sees this figure and we cut back to Sydney and Garrett. Yes, uh, in my notes, I describe this figure as a beninjaed shadow. And also, like, Saja appears to recognize this person or something because he stares directly at the beninjaed shadow's face with this look of recognition for a long time. Which which we, we get a little bit of explanation for later. Yeah, a little bit. But it, in this moment, it makes it feel like he knows who this person is, which is really funny. Right, because the person is literally like, there are barely eye slits in this, <laughs> in this costume. Right. 
Well, we cut back to the Sydney and Garrett scene where Sydney's defending her choice to swipe poems from JT, and Garrett perches disgruntled on his mini bike. And now he says, Mila's in love with JT's soul, not his. Dude, Garrett, that's because you don't have a soul. There is no soul there. And Sydney, I think, acknowledges this, uh, or recognizes this, because she starts laughing. <laughs> she does. She is enjoying this twist hugely, and gotta hand it to her. She deserves it. And then, then Garrett goes, you got me into this. You have to get me out or join the Dead Poets Society. On second thought, death is too good for you. Second death threat of the episode from Garrett to Sydney. We're a minute 30 into this episode. There will be more. And Saja comes running in and just blitzing into the, the frame, calling for help, cowers behind Garrett, looks behind him, sees nothing, and proclaims himself to be safe. We cue the racist gong and cut to commercial. When we come back, JT and Neil are asleep on the floor of JT's room. JT is snuggling a fanned-out handful of dollar bills and appears to be sniffing them and having a pleasant dream about the smell of money, while Neil cuddles the Einstein teddy bear he was given in the hospital. And the camera pans up to see Owen filming them asleep from the open window. What is Owen doing? (laughs) And then he crawls into the room with his shoulder-mounted video camera. You remember when video cameras had to be shoulder-mounted? Oh, I sure do. It was fun. This is, by the way, a Super 8. It says on the side of the of the camera, Super 8. So, blast from the past, y'all. Yeah. So, he crawls into the room with this camera. The music goes cr- like crazy fast guitar rock as this kid in white socks and Birkenstocks starts filming the room in which is set up a ton of carnival games. And apparently... The loud music is coming from the camera because it wakes up JT and Neil with some pretty strenuous objections to being awakened at this time. Oh no, so it's not super clear because we haven't seen this for many, many episodes, but somehow Owen climbing in through the window sets off JT's Rube Goldberg alarm clock system. Yeah, you remember the the obligatory Rube Goldberg alarm clock that every geeky child in an 80s or 90s TV or movie had to have? Yeah, yes I do, yes I do. <laughs> but I don't, like, is it an alarm system now? Like, why, why does Owen climbing in make it go off? It doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't know. I don't, maybe, you know what? Maybe we need to go back and look at that original episode to see if it was Neil climbing in that actually set off the alarm. Ah, good point. Maybe it's not actually an, uh, an alarm clock. Maybe it is, in fact, JT's intruder alarm system. Uh, you know, like the one that they set up in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Makes perfect sense. Anyway, uh, JT says into the camera, we get like a we get a POV shot from Owen's perspective looking through his Super 8 camera. JT says into the camera, the party's not for another 12 hours. And Owen's like, I'll just wait and then I can get footage of everyone entering the party. <laughs> the hell, Owen? Owen has nothing to do for the next 12 hours, apparently. I guess not. They take his camera and shove his head up through the little basketball hoop net that they've set up on the side column of the room. Yeah, it's like a it's like a reverse dunk from the bottom up. It's like a reverse swirly is what's happening here. <laughs> oh, God, reverse swirly might be the name for this episode. I like it. I like it. Cut to outside the sub where Jimmy is banging on the ladder with a wrench because he's a mechanic, you guys. You get it? You get it? I think. But like. 
but like he has a wrench because he's a mechanic. <laughs> and he's banging. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think this is the first time, maybe the first time, it's definitely the first time that I've noticed it, that we've seen the bottom of the sub ladder, which is clearly bolted to the dock. <laughs> yeah. Which I love because that's generally not how docks work. <laughs> <laughs> If you're tying up a boat or a sub or something, you generally don't bolt it in place. Not typically. Because water moves. Right, yeah. That would be pretty disastrous, in fact, if you permanently fixed your vessel to (laughs) another object. (laughs) Yeah. Saja runs on from camera right with literally no explanation of how he got away from Sydney and Garrett. I'm actually not sure. Is this the next morning? I think, yeah. Because Sydney and... Garrett were like that was last night. Yeah. And that appears to be daytime. So I assume Saja has just been running hysterically all over the town of Swan's Crossing from approximately maybe two or three in the morning until now when it's like not quite nine AM as we find out later. The best case scenario here is that he slept in his ninja outfit. And he's still just running around in an absolute hysterical fit over what he saw at the Walker Estate. I love Saja. It's <laughs> amazing. He starts explaining. So Callie comes off the sub. He starts. Saja starts explaining every where he's been, and he was following Barrett to the old Walker Estate. He lost Barrett, but ran into his quote old friend who dresses up as a docking post, or in this case, an elm tree. Right, which refers to Captain Baldy. Right, and then. Uh, he says that he saw someone rising up from the ground and he was dressed just like Saja in the ninja outfit. And that's where I think the, the like recognition comes in. <laughs> and it was at this point that I started to wonder, is the identity of Pegasus ever revealed, number one? And number two, is it, if not, could this have been Callie's evil twin? Maybe. Maybe. Although, I mean... The figure looks like a man, you know, like, like has the proportions of an adult man. Although who knows if in season two, it was going to be set up as Callie's evil twin (laughs) is a ninja just lurking around the Walker estate. (laughs) Wow. I love that though. I mean, that would have been fucking amazing. Exactly. I mean, RIP season two. Yeah, Folks, there's going to be a lot of speculation about Callie's evil twin and season two for the next, like, I think, for the rest of the episodes. Yeah, we're, we're always going to wonder. It will haunt me for the rest of my life. It will not haunt me for the rest of my life. Like, like random access memory, it will be gone as soon as we finish this podcast. Well, off of Callie's disturbed face, we cut to Glory's bedroom. Garrett pokes his head in the door and finds his sister asleep. He rudely wakes her up, and she doesn't even have to hear him speak a single word before she knows what he's after. She tells him to get out because her poems are off limits. I love that anytime we see Glory sleeping, she is hugging her teddy bear like she's a little cherub. It is really cute. They've really gone out of their way to make Glory as angelic a character as possible. I have a confession to make to all 50 of our listeners and to you. Um, For my entire life, I could not sleep without like a teddy bear or more specifically a stuffed bunny that I had as a child. 
Um, and then, like, as I grew to adulthood, I found that I still could not fall asleep if I didn't have a little stuffy to hold on to because it was just a habit I developed like as a child. But I was like, I can't like sleep with a stuffed animal because that's lame. So I just hug a pillow all night long <laughs> while I sleep. There's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. I know it's great though, but I'm totally like Glory in that regard. I will always be clinging to something while I sleep. <laughs> that's cute. I like that. Anyway, Garrett claims he just wants to talk, and Glory points out that he's usually still asleep before 9 a.m. But Garrett says. He can't sleep, and he spills his guts that he's afraid, because now that he finally has a girlfriend, if she finds out that JT wrote all those poems, she'll dump him in a second, which apparently is what was supposed to happen in season two. Yeah. Because Willa ends up with JT. Yeah, so Glory realizes that he's pretty desperate and, quote, must really like Mila, and she reminds him that he also used to like Sydney. There's this, there's this exchange about... Uh, how much he'd do for her and how much she wouldn't do for him. And it, it's just, he goes, she got me into more trouble than anyone I'd ever known. And Glory goes, from here, it looks pretty even. And Garrett immediately changes the subject. And also, like, another really great Garrett line in this in this scene is where he's, like, making a plea with Glory for more poetry, and she's resisting, and he goes, come on, isn't blood thicker than poetry? <laughs> If I ever publish a poetry collection, I'm going to call it Blood is Thicker Than Poetry. <laughs> that would be hilarious. And I hope you do it. No one would know where it comes from. Um, Garrett says he wouldn't even have stolen any poetry if he'd known JT had written it. Glory points out what a shitty excuse that is. But she says, if Garrett promises never to do it again, she won't say anything and she'll allow Mila to continue believing that Garrett wrote the poems that she has already seen. They agree on this. Glory heads out to breakfast, and then to go help Neil and JT. Garrett says he owes her one. This is the point where the show, this particular show, lost all credibility for me, because Glory just leaves her brother alone in her bedroom. Like, like no one, no one at that age leaves their sibling alone in their room. (laughs) Especially not if you know your sibling came in to try to steal something from you. And then you're like, okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. The phone rings. Garrett answers it. It's Mila, who instantly reminds him that he's her favorite poet. So he grabs Glory's poetry notebook, the one that he just said he wouldn't steal from, <laughs> and tells her he's going to bring her a copy of the new poem this afternoon. Yes, instantly seconds after promising glory he would not do it again he does it again because garrett is a sociopath (laughs) we cut to the soda shop where saja is grinning in front of an enormous plate of pancakes callie and jimmy are on either side and callie leads off what is with what is possibly one of my least favorite ways of getting out exposition tell me one more time (laughs) tell me one more time we've already been over this let's go over it again I hate it so much. I hate it when writers do that. It is just, just, just give us the first conversation where this information is conveyed. It's so corny. Because no one does this in real life. No one. No. (laughs) So Saja says that he was following Beric, but as soon as he went to the old Walker estate, he lost Beric. And then he points out that, that, uh, he points out to Jimmy, because Jimmy's like, wait, why did you go to the Walker estate? And Saja's like, ah, that's the place where Glory was found in a snake pit. (laughs) And Saja and Callie kind of wonder whether there's some connection between Beric and the whole glory abduction snake pit mystery. Right. 
Sydney arrives. They offer her the pancakes, which she declines. So essentially, this is another big stack of pancakes going to waste. I think this is, you know what I think? This is the same inedible pancake prop that has been used in multiple occasions. This is the pancake. These are these are Elijah's pancakes. Elijah's pancakes. And, and Elijah has not come for them. They're not edible pancakes. So they keep just using them in scenes so they don't have to make new pancakes. Oh, hope springs eternal. Sometime Elijah will return and consume the pancakes. Yeah. Well, Sydney, uh, they, they ask Sydney whether she's going to be at the party that night. She doesn't seem super confident or enthusiastic about it, but she does say she's going to be there and she promises to bring lots of cash because it's a benefit. I, I may not know the way, but I can pay my way, <laughs> as she, she puts it. We cut to, oh, I also want to bring up, there is no theme song in this episode. So they were trying to pack a lot, pack a lot in. We cut to commercial. When we come back, the party is in full swing. Sandy is freaking out after having won a balloon popping prize. JT, could you describe what JT, Glory, and Neil are wearing? Well, I think I would mainly describe it as like, old-timey card dealer in a Deadwood saloon get up with the addition of those, like, green plastic visors that were, for some reason, used a lot in, like, gambling places in the 80s and 90s. And they have vests that have just visible cash just poking up out of several pockets, like, layers of pockets. If you think about, like, how a dog or a cat has, like, rows of nipples all the way down <laughs> their ventral surface. <laughs> That's what the pockets are like with money coming out of them. And I'm not going to spoil the special edition to Glory's outfit because we're going to get into that later. But that's, they're wandering around in these like Deadwood Saloon gambler getups. Yeah. <laughs> overseeing the financial transactions that are occurring in JT's bedroom. There is so much noise happening. Like <clears throat> Swans Crossing has two levels of background noise. Zero and overwhelming. <laughs> Either everyone in the background has been told not to make any noise at all, or they've all been told to make noise and we can't hear the people in the foreground. Oh my god, it's so funny. I love it. You're right. You're right. Across the room, Owen also wins a game and Neil is forced to pay him out. Neil and JT finally get together and huddle in a corner for an angry conference where we learn that only their core group of friends showed up, but not many other people. And they're mad because they're not even going to break even at this rate. Yeah. Nancy comes over to tell them it's a grand evening, a wonderful soiree, and everyone is winning. Oh my God. Here's what I don't understand. Why, why did they make these games of chance pay out cash and not like insignificant prizes? Because that's how gambling in like, like you go to a Chuck E. Cheese, nothing, nothing that you can win is a fourth of the cost that you put in to win it. Right. Uh, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to go. JT and Neil did not think this through very carefully, and for supposed geniuses, they're, uh, they're a little off the mark here. Um, nevertheless, yeah. I am thrilled to see Nancy, and she's really on point in this episode. Oh, yeah, very true. Uh, <laughs> and as Nancy leaves, Neil's face, I don't, I accidentally, like, I paused it, like, right as he was turning to JT. He has this look of like hysterical like fear and like panic as he's as he's like turning to JT that my screen froze on and it was absolutely phenomenal <laughs> it is a really good look. Great. 
<laughs> we love Eddie Robinson. Glory comes up and announces with her back to the camera that she's turning in her mustache. Then we get another angle, revealing that she's wearing an old-timey curled gentleman's mustache stuck onto her upper lip, which JT solemnly and very slowly peels off of her and sticks to himself. I think I don't think it's it's supposed to be solemn as much as it is supposed to be sexy. Is it sexy? <laughs> I think that's what he's trying to do. I think he's trying to be all flirty, peeling her mustache off. Oh, God. (laughs) It's the only article of clothing that he's ever been able to allow, ever been able to remove from a woman in his entire life. (laughs) You're right. It is. Because they do afterwards, he sticks it to himself, and they smile at each other for an uncomfortably long period of time. And then he gets more money from her and gets back to business. Across the room, Garrett and Mila are talking, and Garrett makes her promise that if he gives her this one last poem, she won't show it to anyone else or tell anyone about it. He proclaims it's because the guys are going to tease him, and she tries to convince him that his sensitive side is one of his strongest points. So she agrees and then pulls away Owen from filming and asks... If he remembers the poem that she gave him about the roses, he tells her that it's now a song and he wants her to sing it on a music video. Oh, yeah. Which is She freaks out. She's like, oh, I'm going to be doing my own music video. Ah! Owen's like totally oblivious to the fact that he already promised to make Sandy the star of this video. It's, I mean, now, my, my impression was that this was going to be a separate music video. You think... <laughs> You think that he's talking about the same music video? Oh, no! Yeah, spoiler alert. He's talking about the same music video because Owen's a ding-dong. Oh, oh, no! Owen! Owen, why? Ugh. Across the room, speaking of Sandy, Sandy's super excited about the editor Owen found for this video, and she's explaining it all to Sydney in the manner of a six-year-old who's telling you everything about their Pokemon collection. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha! Uh, Sydney, as anyone would listening to someone talk about their Pokemon collection, is feigning interest uh, as Garrett walks up and encourages Sandy to, you know, do this video, keep spreading her wings. And as Sandy walks away, Garrett grabs Sydney's elbow and uh, just like manhandles her over to the side and tells her that I'm sure you'll spread your wings doing all that laundry at the Swan House. Right, he actually, like, picks up a basket of JT's dirty laundry as a prop to, like, threaten her with. <laughs> it's pretty great. Sydney is not about to be intimidated by this bullshit. Garrett explicitly threatens her life for the third time this episode, and then smugly says he has managed to convince Glory to keep the whole JT poetry mix-up a secret. Sydney notes that you may have stopped the leak, but you haven't stopped the problem, and she points out that uh, Mila is laughing and futzing with JT's mustache. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> Sydney's like, Mila appreciates a real poet's sense of humor, and then she gives him the best go-fuck-yourself-buddy look of all time and pieces out across the room, leaving Garrett to fume by himself. This really twists the knife. I love it. This is good. We cut over to Mila and JT. Mila has just told him that she and Garrett are officially an item, and Glory looks... Very uncomfortable, but JT is super stoked for them. I, at this point, noted that there are a bunch of dollar bills hanging by fishing line from above all (laughs) over the room. Yeah. As decor, I guess. I, I think it's supposed to be like festive decorations. I guess. Glory tries to distract JT from the whole tale about Mila being boyfriend, girlfriend with Garrett by suggesting they go dunk the bear. Yep. Nathan, 
What kind of 14-year-old pseudo-sex act would be dunking the bear? (laughs) You know what? I'm I'm coming up dry on this one, which I'm sure the bear wouldn't. Um... I don't know. I look back on on my. Uh, I think when I was fourteen, the extent of things went to like kissing and maybe occasionally groping somebody's body part and then running away and feeling guilty about it later. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure what dunking the bear means. It's probably better that we don't speculate too much. That's that's a good idea. They are children after all. Yes. <laughs> JT surmises that there's something else going on here, but he doesn't, because it doesn't quite make sense that Mila and Garrett would be a match. But before we can figure out what that is, we cut to Saja, who's decked out like Disney's Aladdin, and he's counting a stack of money. Uh, Callie brings Sydney over to have her fortune read. The sign next to Saja's table says, Double your buck if I'm wrong. <laughs> what the fuck? So I think, I think from what I gather from the next scene is that Saja is going to read people's tarot cards. And if his reading is incorrect about what's really going on in people's lives, he will pay them. That's insane. I think. That's an insane way to do this. This is a really interesting scene to me because I actually occasionally do read tarot cards just for fun. But he has Sydney draw a card. The first card she pulls is the devil reversed which signifies releasing or rising above the things that have previously controlled or obsessed you. So this is like actually a favorable card for Sydney in this situation. However, Saja, for no apparent reason, interprets it as there's a guy in your life. (laughs) Okay. Not the interpretation of that. Sydney's like about to get up and Saja's like, no, 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 wait. He pulls another card for her. He gets the three of wands. The three of wands signifies like smooth sailing ahead, confidence, preparedness, conviction. Like it's, this is good. This is a good fortune for Sydney so far. Um, and instead, like instead of using the actual interpretations of these cards, he interprets it to mean for some reason, there's a guy in Sydney's life and he's a poet. Like, I'm not sure how you would get that out of the devil reversed in the three of wands, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Sasha. <laughs> So Callie starts demanding Sydney's money from uh, from Saja because the only poet here is quote JT, but Saja protests that that's what's in the cards, and Cindy, Sydney interrupts, saying that the cards are right, proving that she'll never really get what she wants. <sighs> so weird. Crossfade to later in the night. JT is sitting with his feet up counting his fat stacks and Katie comes over with two of her young friends and claims there's $300,000 and 87 chips like poker chips. I I did not for the longest time understand what was happening here, but come to find out later, Katie and her little girlfriends are selling concessions. So apparently they have made $300,000 off of brownies and, and glory's lemonade. I love this. These eight-year-olds baked a bunch of cookies and made $300,000. I mean, I think Katie's supposed to be teasing him a little bit and they made more like $300, but still, that's an insane amount of money to make from a bakery sale when you're eight years old. Yeah, when you had 10 friends show up to your carnival party. (laughs) So good. Everyone there spent 30 bucks on cookies. Fortunately, 
the friends are no longer the only ones here because Ralph and Mr. Han walk in the door. I love this. Uh, <laughs> here to support the cause, which Neil immediately says is already lost. <laughs> Mr. Han and Ralph start gambling with all these children. Like, that's a normal thing to do. I love that they just stroll in and they're like, yep, we're going to start start playing all these gambling games with a bunch of minors. <laughs> yeah, absolutely makes perfect sense. Uh, we cut over to Nancy, who's buying these snacks from Katie and her friends. JT asks if he and Neil should be getting a percentage of the concessions, <laughs> at which point I was very confused. Because I hadn't, like, I was just now piecing together, like, what was happening. Yeah, it's a little unclear, but, like, apparently Katie and her friends sort of scooped this whole, they're like, oh, there's going to be a carnival going down? We're going to set up concessions <laughs> to run our own yeah. business on the side. Smart. So Neil calls everyone over for the chance of winning a grand prize, a voice-controlled three-speed automatic scooter. I love this. It's the scooter has Alexa in it before Alexa and, and like existed. <laughs> Definitely a rich people thing. Definitely. <laughs> While the crowd gathers, oh. someone bumps Sydney, causing her to drop her Chanel handbag, but she doesn't notice. The camera holds a tight shot on the bag while a pair of hands delves into it and removes Sydney's enormous wad of cash. Ralph uh, wins the wheel spin for the scooter. <laughs> And he and Mr. Han essentially, like, grab the scooter and jet, which I love. They're old enough to know, like, you you quit when you're ahead. Right, they have it figured out. And, and the thing that I love about this is there, I don't remember what exactly is said because you can barely understand what's being said with the background noise. But there is some line about Mr. Uh, Mr. that Mr. Han says to Ralph about his jet ski and how it'll be nice to have a scooter as well. As the whole crowd starts to disperse, Garrett picks up Sydney's bag and hands it to her. Then Saja and Callie pause before they leave, so Saja can swear that he will continue to pursue the little Mamba Jamba, which is what he calls the quest for Sydney's birth certificate, and swears never to abandon Callie. And the horrible racist bagpipe honk sounds as they leave. I mean, this and this bagpipe honk is prolonged. It is loud and long. JT and Neil are left alone. Morosely, they toy with the slot machine and the raffle ball tumbler as we fade to commercial. Uh, when we're back, the boys have not made any money at all. They're back to the original $3 Mr. Han gave them. <laughs> and, and JT says, this is probably my favorite line in the episode, Neil, life was much easier when we were just working with astroparticle physics. And then JT recalls, that he's actually in the hole three bucks to Katie for cupcakes because he ate six cupcakes. So they don't even have the $3 Mr. Han <laughs> They make $0 on this venture. Fortunately, Saja proposes to pay them for their computer expertise because he needs them to find Sydney's birth certificate. They turn around and he pulls out Sydney's big wad of cash and they immediately get to work and we cut over to Sydney. Now, the... The first image that we get of Sydney, she is lying on her side on her white bed in a black, like, knee-length dress, uh, pearl, huge pearl bracelet, dialing her gold princess <laughs> It is so good. It's really, really great. Great shot of Princess Sydney Rydal's her first appearance in the John Purse. It's so good. <laughs> <dope. laughs> 
Garrett answers the phone in his sister's room. So I guess Garrett and Glory have to share this phone line. I don't know. It seems like this being a rich people thing and all, they could afford to have their own private lines, but whatever. It's Sydney. She accuses him of stealing her money. And then Garrett says, what would I want with your money? My dad's portfolio is on an upswing and he's being very generous. <laughs> Sydney points out that Garrett was the last person to touch her purse and now it's empty. And then we cut. We don't cut. We screen wipe. You're right. You're right. We screen wipe. Everything from here to the end of the episode is a screen wipe. And it is wonderful. So many screen wipes. We screen wipe to Saja telling Callie all about how he's solving the Sydney problem. Callie gets another call or, like, is going to call someone else? No, no, here's what happens. So Callie's phone is made of copper pipes, as we've established. Her little thing for controlling it is a valve, like a like a, a spigot valve, like on the outside of your house, that she turns like a, like a frickin' combination lock when she wants to do something with the phone. And she essentially uses this little spigot to put Saja on hold and call Sydney. <laughs> yeah, there's no like, there's no dialing of numbers or anything. She just turns the valve and the phone like automatically calls Sydney. Yep, that's what happens. Wow. That is what happens. Sydney wipes into the split screen and uh, she picks up the incoming call from Callie. Callie tells her they're tracking her records right now. Sydney informs Callie about the theft. Callie is immediately suspicious, screen wipes us back to Saja and asks how he paid for JT and Neil. Then we screen wipe to Sydney and Garrett. She accuses Garrett of being a thief and a liar and tell and he tells her to hold the wire and picks up as Mila swipes into the conversation from the princess phone in her bedroom. <laughs> This is like some cursed Brady Bunch shit going on right now. Mila gushes over the new poem. Garrett switches back to Sydney and asks her why anyone would want to take her money. Uh, who wouldn't want to possess a giant roll of cash the size of a russet potato? I mean, I wouldn't steal someone's money, but like, I'd love to have just a huge brick of cash. Right? Who doesn't want a huge brick of cash? You feel like a baller. Right, yeah. Before Sydney can answer, we see Callie and Saja again. Saja says it was a balancing act of karma, and Callie is amused that Sydney is financing her own search. Callie gets another call. It's Jimmy at the Tool and Die. He hears something and has to instantly go. And my favorite part about this moment is he doesn't hang up the phone because he's in too much of a hurry, right? But he also doesn't just drop it. He very carefully places it like he was told... Don't let the phone swing down against the wall, Jimmy. Yeah, he just like gently lets the phone hang at the end of its cord rather than just hanging it back up, which would have made sense. And he runs away. We cut to a six-way split screen where everyone is trying to get the person who's not listening to them back on the line. It's like, Jimmy? Callie? Saja? It's so, so good. And into the midst of this mayhem, a red frame opens directly in the center. It's Captain Baldy. He appears to be listening in on all the phones in Swan's Crossing at once. Fade to black, roll credits. Oh my god, it's so good. I love it so much. It's the best ending. Well, I mean, obviously Psychopath of the Week was Garrett. 100%. That, oh my gosh, can't stand him. 
No question. No question. I mean, he started out strong right at the top of the episode with absolute psychopathy, and he did not let up for a moment all the way through. Yeah. Uh, swan count. We I we have one new fake swan, which was the swan uh, payphone that Saja was on at the end. And then we have one new imaginary swan because Lita is seen on the side of the sub. I don't have a running total because I am worried that I've lost count somewhere. So uh, we're going to have that back next week, folks. Yeah. Let me hit mute on my mic and you can give me your predictions for next episode. Okay. JT and Neil are on the hunt for Sydney's birth records. And Callie, I think, comes clean with Sydney about where her money went. Or if not, Sydney tries to get Garrett in trouble for theft. So one of those two things happened. I sort of hope that Sydney tries to get Garrett in trouble for theft. Garrett continues to be stuck with Mila mooning over JT's poems. I think we get more of Sandy Owen working on the music video. I think it's probably next episode or the episode after that Sandy discovers that Owen has invited Mila to participate in the music video. Uh, Jimmy is on the run from someone, but I don't think it's Barrick. Maybe he gets into a bit of a desperate situation. Barrick, like, rescues him. That's what I think happens there. Hopefully we get more conversations with Pegasus, or at least a Pegasus appearance. That's what I hope happens in the next episode. I don't think we get anything about the mayoral race. I don't think we see any gronies other than Barrick and maybe, uh, maybe Jazz. Well, we will see what happens in episode 61 as we roll into the final broadcast week of Swan's Crossing, the greatest TV show of all time. Thank you to Richard Winsler and Steve Lane for the use of our theme song, Gotta Grow Up Sometime from the Hitch House Swan's Crossing. And if you want to find us on social media where you can send me direct messages of your questions for our very final episode, we're on Instagram at Swan's Cross Pod and on Twitter at Gotta Grow Up Pod. And until we can see one another again, try playing Dunk the Bear. <laughs> Too bad almost only counts in horseshoes and nuclear war. <laughs>